Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Don't forget, the cupboard was bare. The other administration, the last administration, left us nothing. We didn't have ventilators. We didn't have medical equipment. We didn't have testing. The tests were broken. You saw that. We had broken tests. They left us nothing. That was President Trump on ABC News blaming the Obama administration for coronavirus failures on his watch. Hey, everybody, I'm Dana Bash, CNN's chief political correspondent in for David Chalian, and this is The Daily D.C., Pointing the finger at his predecessor is a frequent Trump refrain anytime anyone asks about his own administration's missteps. When David Muir reminded him that this happened as the last of his own four-year term was beginning, here's what he said. Well, I'll be honest, uh, I have a lot of things going on. They wasted a lot of time on Russia, Russia, Russia. That turned out to be a total hoax. Then they did Ukraine, Ukraine, and that was a total hoax. Then they impeached the president of the United States for absolutely no reason. This, as we learned that this lack of pandemic preparedness may not be only having an impact now, but also for future virus outbreaks. Here was former CDC director Tom Frieden on Capitol Hill this morning. Never again. It is inevitable that there will be future outbreaks. It's not inevitable that we will continue to be so underprepared. So joining me now to discuss all this is Lisa Monaco. She is a CNN national security analyst, but most importantly, was Homeland Security Advisor under President Obama. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. I have so many things that I can't wait to hear your take on. First and foremost, I want everybody who is listening to know if they haven't seen it, they need to find it online. You wrote an op-ed in 2018. That's right, 2018, around the 100th anniversary of the Spanish flu outbreak. And in that, you said pandemic disease is arguably one of the greatest threats to global stability and security. And you went on to say that the financial commitments to the agenda have been dramatically reduced under Trump, leaving us all vulnerable to an unparalleled array of emerging health threats, the likes of which we haven't seen since 1918. I have chills reading that. And I'm sure you, you know, you're, you're probably beyond chills. You're probably nauseous because you, you were trying to get everybody's attention. Well, hey, Dana, good to be with you. I will tell you, I don't take any pride in that statement or having written that more than a year ago now. You know, ironically, or perhaps presciently, that article that you referenced had a title that normally op-ed writers, when they write op-eds, they kind of throw up their hands and are annoyed when it's given a title that seems alarmist. The title of that piece, if I recall correctly, was The Next Pandemic Will Be Arriving Shortly. Ugh. So, yeah, look, it's let me just say at the outset, Dana, I think any administration of any stripe in any party, regardless of seasoning, competence, any administration would have been challenged 
by this pandemic, by this crisis. So let's just begin from that premise. And then I think, yes, we need to have a discussion about how uh, the country was poised and how we've been handling it since, um, you know, the late, late part of December, early part of January. And most importantly, what we should be doing now. Mm-hmm. to help because we are, you know, I think people often like to look back in the midst of a crisis and certainly there will be plenty of time to be doing that. But we are still square in the middle of this and it's a long, uh, it's a long road. All right. So I do want to go, go back, obviously, since you were the one, you know, raising and ringing the alarms. But because you brought that up, let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. You're in the White House right now. You are Homeland Security Director right now. The president turns to you and says, okay, we are where we are. What do we do? What's your answer? Well, that would be a, a, a fictitious scenario for a number of reasons. <laughs> Most importantly, it's because, unfortunately, the job I had, Homeland Security Advisor to the president, um, no longer exists. It's been effectively erased, and that happened in 2018 when my successor, uh, Tom Bossert, who served in the Bush administration in a different role, uh, was removed from his job at the same time that the Global Health Security Directorate inside the National Security Council was dismantled. And I think that's, I think that's a problem, quite frankly, from a standpoint of governance mm-hmm. and good government. What I would be saying is, let's stop the finger pointing about who who's responsible. Is it the governor? Is it the president? Is the federal government? Is it the states? Who's in charge and who gets to say, mother, may I? The question should be, how can the federal government come together and help state and local leaders? Because we're mm-hmm. all Americans uh, and we have to execute this at the local level. So, so what's the best way to do that? So one question I would be having is, look, governors, mayors, They all have to be making, frankly, decisions right now about how to manage the risk, right? Yes, we need to uh, get folks back to work. Yes, we need to minimize the deaths and the dislocation from this. And how do we do that smartly? How do we resume responsibly? And for that, governors and mayors, they need data. They need help. They need guidance. How much testing can they be doing? What's the level of positive tests that they should be seeing in order to start phasing in a reopening. We're not seeing that type of guidance being given to governors and mayors. Um, What type of resources and what should they be looking at in terms of the contact tracing, right? Should they be planning against a need to trace uh, 10 contacts for every infected individual or is it five? I mean, what are the standards? What's the guidance? That's the job of the federal government. In addition, quite obviously, to be helping them get the supplies to do that contact tracing, um, to, to, to do that testing. Um, yes, it has to be executed at the local level, but it is the job of the federal government to help get those resources to the people who need it most. You know, the president very famously said, um, you know, federal government is not a supply clerk. Well, actually, in a disaster, that's exactly what the federal government is. They are the the provider uh, and the helper to the states. So you said at the outset that, you know, this would be tough for any administration, which is, I mean, it's unprecedented. So in modern times, certainly. So that's that's true. Um, if you had to give this administration's response a grade, what would you give it? I love the, the grade question because um, it's it has been failing 
in many respects, right? We know that the testing from the get-go uh, has been a problem. It is, as our as our colleague, our CNN colleague, Juliet Kayyem, I think, has dubbed this, uh, testing is the original sin, right? Mm-hmm. It has continued to be a problem, and it's so critical to going back to work uh, that not solving it and not contrary to what has been being said, um, we have almost two realities going on here. You have the president saying, we've got plenty of tests. And you've got governors and mayors and others on the front line saying, we need tests. So both things can't be true. Uh, so I think clearly uh, there has been a failure on that front. There's been a failure of communication. You know, the early parts of this, particularly the early parts of this, the series of mixed messages uh, that are really difficult uh, and, a, and a real problem in a in a public health crisis. I learned early on when I was helping lead our response to Ebola, uh, you need to speak credibly, consistently, right, and communicate that way uh, so that people uh, have the information they need to uh, to make themselves safe and, and to do what they need to do for their families. And, and the other place where I think not only are we failing, but we're just absent. We're not even on the field, right? So let's take the school metaphor to the, to the sports metaphor. We're not even on the field. We can't win the game when it comes to an international response, right? We need a global response. And um, the United States historically galvanizes international leaders and allies. You called the U.S. the quarterback to keep the sports metaphor going. Exactly, yes, well done. And we're nowhere. Right. So we're as uh, as has been observed, you know, there was a vaccine summit, an international summit virtually, of course, to discuss vaccine research. Mm -hmm. That's just two days ago, I think the United States wasn't even there when it came to convening the G7 leaders, the industrialized nations. Right. Was it the U.S. that convened? No, it was the president of France when it came to convening the G20. It wasn't the United States. It was the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, of all places, who said, let's convene the G20. I mean, we are on the outside looking in. And the fact, and this isn't about politics, Dana, this is about American security in a pandemic. It is critical to have global health security if you're going to have American security. Yeah, so so it's not about politics to that end. You mentioned that you led the Obama administration response to Ebola in 2014. You took the lessons that you learned from that and you sat with the incoming Trump administration officials who were supposed to be taking your jobs and you did some Mm run-throughs. And right, I mean, you tell me about this and and you said, okay, here, here are some scenarios of crises that could happen, including a pandemic. And so what what did that, and specifically a pandemic. So tell it, take us inside that room. What does that look like when you're, when you're running that saying, okay, this is what we have to do. This is what we are doing to get ahead of this. So first um, it was, I was basically taking a page out of my predecessor's book in the Bush administration. The Bush administration um, said, we want to share with you all incoming national security team lessons we learned from, oh, that's right, 9-11, which of course Mm -hmm. had happened on their watch, Katrina, right? I found myself in that room, Dana, so I'll tell you about that room as well as Mm -hmm. eight Mm -hmm. years later. I was in that room because at the time I was chief of staff to then a little known Washington lawyer named Bob Mueller, who was director of the FBI at the time. And 
we walked through a series of scenarios and really side by side, the outgoing team with the incoming team sharing information. And to a person, I think people who participated in that said, you know what, that's how it should work, right? We ought to learn lessons. So fast forward 2016, I'm the President's Homeland Security Advisor in the White House and President Obama said, I want to a comprehensive professional transition, just like Bush did for me. I want to do the same thing for the Trump administration. And it was my job to participate in that. And I convened and and had my team design that same uh, side-by-side scenario. And so when it came time to decide what's going to be in that, what are the what are the kind what's the war game scenario we're going to do? We did a terrorism exercise, a cyber one, uh, a um, hurricane. But I specifically said we need to include a pandemic scenario because we had been tested by H1N1, by Ebola, by Zika. And I knew then, and as you have pointed out, I have warned since, that this would be one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest challenge, the next team would face. So we all gathered in a big room on the White House complex in the old executive office building. You know the, you know the building well. Um, and we sat side by side, the outgoing team with the incoming team. I sat next to Tom Bossert, who was my successor at the time. Uh, and I asked him to co-chair, frankly, the, the multi-hour discussion with me. And we walked through a series of scenarios. And when it came to the pandemic, we chose a hypothetical new strain of flu that would hit the United States oh coming from on a plane. I literally have the chills right now. It's scary, right? But it was, you know, so the notion that this wasn't foreseen is not, of course, true, right? People, public health experts, homeland security experts have been very concerned that this is the type of threat we would face. And we worked through issues like, what do we do about travel? Do we decide to, to shut down air travel? Vulnerable populations like nursing homes are going to be particularly hard hit. What do we do about that? When should and what kind of guidance does the federal government give to mayors about closing schools? What about a shortage of supplies when it comes to protective equipment, to ventilators? These were all the questions that got raised uh, because in, you know, scenarios and war games like that that have gone on, uh, in in prior instances, these are the questions you confront. And our message, and, and I should say, Dana, the, the point here isn't that, oh, we gave them an answer key. That's not the point. This wasn't, you know, a secret test that um, if they had only been paying attention, that's not, that's not what I'm trying to convey. The point here is we said, look, these are the types of issues that are going to arise. These are the questions you got to start planning for and critically You've got to know that speed is of the essence, right? You're going to constantly be behind the eight ball. And, you know, and that's those are lessons that were learned the hard way, quite frankly, in the Obama administration. I got to ask you about the New York Times reporting out today about Jared Kushner and how he kind of took over the process in a way that he had young, inexperienced volunteers, people who were on Wall Street, kind of lead the supply chain task force. They prioritized leads from those politically or personally connected and so forth. I'm sure you've read it. What is your reaction to that? I, I, when I when I look at you, I'm actually seeing in my head, you know, the mind-blowing emoji <laughs> that you have on your phone? Yeah. 
Uh, it is mind blowing, right? It's I, I read that reporting this morning, and if all of that is true, um, look, it's incredibly frustrating because um, you know there's there's expertise, there's professionals working in the government. It is FEMA's job, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, right, to run this type of operation, right? To to be think of it as your general contractor to simply ignore or to bypass or to layer on top of the professionals and the expertise that exists in the government. And I'm not saying it's perfect, Mm -hmm. but it's just a recipe for chaos. And that's not how government should work in a crisis. I got to ask you about the president saying, you and the Obama administration left him with no tests. You you and the Obama administration left the cupboard bare. So there are two different things here, right? First of all, the no test. Correct me if I'm wrong, because this drives me crazy every time he says this. <laughs> How do you test in the Obama administration for a virus that doesn't exist? Am I right? You're absolutely right. Yes. Thanks for clearing up the time-space continuum issue there. I, I mean, it is it is tough these days. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> okay. The cupboard bear, though, might be a more, if accurate, might be a more fair criticism about ventilators and other PPE um, not being there for this in the stockpile that they need now. True or false? So uh, I think that's a lot more complex question, right? I mean, uh, I, on the one hand, the cupboard was bare. On the other hand, we now have, according to the, the president and other statements, um, we've got no problem. There are ventilators everywhere. There's no problem with ventilators. There's no problem with tests. So uh, it, it, that doesn't sound completely consistent to me, which is not unusual. But I guess I would, I would say this, Dana. I think we should take a long, hard look at, as part of what I'm sure will be a very rigorous look back uh, ultimately at this issue to this question of the strategic national stockpile, which is a, a federal stockpile, which contrary to statements from Jared Kushner, is in fact there to help uh, support the states, right? It's not the federal government stockpile to be used exclusively, right? It's there to help the United States uh, of America. Uh, we should take a long look at how we have a sustained source of funding But over time, that stockpile, the mission of it has expanded to deal with other issues, to deal with um, broader sets of requirements, including things like PPE. That's a real choice, and that's a real Hobson's choice. And so I think we need to be able to to do both of those things. The last thing I would say is the stockpile was never meant to be a perfect solution, a one-for-one substitute in a crisis. It's always been envisioned as a bridge to activating the supply chain. And we just frankly haven't done that robustly. That's such an interesting point. And it's just human slash political slash policy nature as somebody who has covered the White House and more importantly, Congress is when they have to make decisions on what to cut, um, something that seems like a far away, you know, fantasy thing that's not going to happen is the first thing that they cut, right? That's just the way it works. Do you think that we're going to see more pandemics more frequently now and and if so, why? Uh, look, I do. I think this is not the last, uh, and this you know, chillingly may not even be the big one, as they say, right? The, for a host of reasons, right? I've long said emerging infectious disease is the big concern, meaning naturally occurring pandemics like the one we're in, because of increased urbanization, right, where populations are moving more into kind of clash with uh, more rural communities to globalization, the ease of travel, all of these things combine to make 
make it a lot more likely that you're going to see this type of spread in the future. You are somebody who was really sounding the alarm early on because of your expertise. And we're lucky to have you um, with us at CNN. And uh, I appreciate everything that you do. Thanks very much, Dana. Good to be with you. You too. Thank you so much, Lisa. And thank you so much to our listeners as well. Remember, we publish a new episode every weeknight, so please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, please consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. And if you want to tweet about this podcast, please do so using the hashtag TheDailyDC. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.